The text for this morning's sermon is Luke nine fifty seven through sixty two. Luke nine fifty seven through sixty two. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that... These words that we read today from our Lord and Savior, that we would understand them, that we would trust them, and uh, that we would follow Him. Uh, God, I pray that we would count the cost this morning, that uh, we would lift our eyes to the prize that is promised all those who follow Christ. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you this morning, uh, hey, after church, let's go sledding. Many of you could actually go sledding with me. Because what it takes to sled is to put on some warm clothes, go to the top of a hill, sit down, and slide down. Some of you might not be able to get to the top of the hill to go a second time, but you maybe could go once. Sledding doesn't take that much preparation. You don't have to be real fit to do it. But if I said, hey, let's go run a marathon today, most of you would laugh and say, well, I'm not fit to go run a marathon today, especially in these conditions. Or if I were to say, hey, let's go pole vaulting this afternoon. Most of you would say, well, I'm not fit to pole vault. I was a pole vaulter. And I can tell you that I couldn't go pole vaulting this afternoon. The unique thing about the sport of pole vaulting is if there's any ounce of fear or hesitation, it won't go well because you need all your speed, full force, absolutely as fast as you can run, no hesitation, put that fiberglass pole into a complete stop and then to complete the vault. If you don't do that, the mat's that way. And whenever I was hesitant, you would either come down in the box area where there is no mat or back down on the runway. You had to be full tilt in order to pole vault. 
there had to be a fitness of uh, both body and mind to make it happen. You watch these shows about Marines uh, that are training to become Navy SEALs. You need to have a fitness of body to come complete and actually become a SEAL, but there has to be a fitness of mind. Most people don't cut it. They're not able to finish the course. My question for you this morning is, are you fit to follow Christ? Because Jesus says at the end of this passage, he who puts his hand to the plow and and yet looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be fit for the kingdom of God? He's not talking physically, and he's not even talking morally. He's not saying you got to become such a good person if you want to be fit for the kingdom of God. What he's talking about, the way a person is fit for the kingdom, is he's talking about you're treasuring, you're valuing Christ. Jesus taught our whole life flows out of our hearts. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about your thinking. You think in your heart, you love in your heart, and you act out of your heart. And Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We're not mainly just thinkers as human beings. You know, a secular person might say, well, I just want to look at facts. That's what controls my life. Facts, data, it's not true. We're at the core worshipers. What controls everyone's life is actually not just the knowledge they have, but it's their loves, what they treasure, what they worship. That's what controls everybody's life. If you want to know where your heart is, it's where your treasure is. To be fit for the kingdom is to have your treasures, your priorities in the right place. Do you treasure Jesus above all else? Determines whether or not you're fit for the kingdom of God. Following Jesus is hard. It requires a desperate valuing of Him And what He offers you and what He's done for you on the cross to take away your sins, to unite you with God, to reconcile you to God so that you can live everlastingly with Him in heaven. There has to be a desperate valuing of that above all things or else you will not be fit to follow Jesus. You won't last. 
Because if there's a greater treasure, you'll stop. Because your heart follows your treasure. So, in this text, we have two men that come to Jesus and say, I want to follow you. And then you have another man that Jesus says, follow me. And Jesus is much different than our contemporary evangelists. He's weird. His plan seems flawed. Hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. Jesus seems to say, whoa, 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 stop. Think. Count the cost. You know, this is a modern day evangelist's best day. You want to follow Jesus? Oh, praise God. That's awesome. I want to read to you uh, a quote from John MacArthur uh, considering this topic. He says, the Lord's approach is very different from modern evangelism, which views becoming a Christian as an emotional or impulsive decision, a feeling-induced act to which people are led by fiery preaching, heart-trending stories and emotional, emotionally stirring music. The goal of contemporary evangelistic methodology is to induce people to seize the moment, to pray a prayer, to make a decision to accept Christ. But Jesus never tried to move people emotionally into a moment of crisis in which they would accept Him. There's no record in the New Testament of Jesus or the apostles counseling someone to make such a momentary choice or pray a prayer in order to be saved. When the Lord invited a person to receive forgiveness and salvation by faith in Him, He did not want the emotion of the moment's feelings of guilt, fear, or desire for a better life, but a carefully thought-out lifetime commitment to Himself as Lord. To Jesus and the apostles as well, following Christ salvifically, was not an event, but a way of life. Martin Luther captured the essence of that principle in the very first of his uh, famed 95 theses, when he says, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He called for an entire life of believers to be one, or he called for the entire life of believers to be one of penitence. Every time Jesus said, Follow me, he says it in the present active imperative tense in the Greek language. It was never a momentary commitment, but it was a lifelong commitment to say, I'm following you. I treasure you above all else, and I'm following you. That's not to say that a person wasn't saved when they prayed a prayer. A person can be saved the moment they trust Christ and pray a prayer, but that faith the person has when they're saved is a type of faith that says, 
That's my life. Christ is my life. I'm going with him. He's my Lord. And so we, as we see Jesus in this text, we see him wanting those who are desiring to follow him to count the cost. Jesus is extremely realistic. He doesn't hide the difficulties in following him. If you remember back in Luke chapter 9, in verse 22, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He told the disciples, here's where I'm going. Rejection, suffering, death, resurrection. That's what it's going to take to follow Christ because of the very next passage he says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then verse 25 speaks of valuing. For what does it profit? What does it profit? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? What? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Well, it profits him the whole world. Yet Jesus says, but loses his life, forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's saying you can gain the whole world, but when I come in glory, when the angels come in glory at the end, and you lose your soul and you're separated from God forever, and you're not glorified with God in heaven, you've made a bad value judgment. You need to die in order to have life. It's a path of suffering first, dying to self first, then glory. And so we've already seen this theme. It's important to realize Jesus is teaching one main point in this text. Uh, and, and that point is this, treasure Christ above all else and follow him. Jesus is not teaching about here's how a Christian is to take care of his family. Luke is pointing out, trying to make one point in this text, which is treasure Christ above all else, and as we're going to see, even family. The Bible tells us how to love our wives. The Bible tells us how to raise our children how to love our neighbor. But there's a preeminence in Christ above all things. And we'll see that here in a moment. The first thing we see is 
or the first question I want you to ask yourself is, do I value the acceptance of man and comfort more than Christ? Because we're trying to figure out, are you fit for the kingdom of God? Do I value the acceptance of man and comfort more than Christ? Verse 57 says this. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew tells us that this is a scribe. So this is surprising. The scribes were mainly against Jesus. This would be a convert of all converts. This would be what you think Jesus would want. Here's a scribe saying, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now, scribes were experts in the law. They would follow rabbis. They knew the law inside and out. And the average lay person in Israel would go to a scribe an expert in the law to learn things about God. Well, this particular gentleman uh, probably witnessed the paralyzed man uh, because they were in Capernaum uh, be healed. He, He heard of his miracle working. He evidently heard his teaching and thought, you know, this is a step up in life. If I follow this teacher which I'm willing to do, how much more does that help me climb the ladder in this world? It seems like attaching yourself to Jesus is attaching yourself to the greatest show on earth. This is where all the crowds are going. This is the person you want to align your life up to. But Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds there have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You remember last week, in verse 51, we read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem, and he sent his disciples into uh, Samaria to set up a place for them to stay that night. And... Uh, They rejected uh, Jesus' disciples. There was no provisions for him there. And this guy comes and says, hey, I want to follow you. And he says, all right, we don't have a place to sleep tonight. The Son of Man, the creator of the world, the birds, the creation, the foxes have a home, a place to rest his head. But the Son of Man is rejected. In this world, the Son of Man is rejected. There is not a place or an acceptance for him in this world. And he's saying, You want to follow me? You want fellow man to reject you? You want to give up your comforts of a pillow and a bed? You want to follow me? Jesus knew the hearts of every man he talked to. And he knew that although this superficial saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, 
that at the heart, there was not a commitment to follow him on the path that he was on, the path to the cross. There would be a point where that pillow and that rejection, if he valued man's acceptance more than Christ, he would turn around. He would be done quickly. Uh, In fact, even up to this point in Jesus' life, uh, there's just this list that's uh, given. He's already uh, been driven out of his hometown synagogue uh, when he preached his first sermon there, and they tried to kill him. He got driven out of Nazareth uh, as he healed the demoniac in, in the region of the Gerasenes. They told him, get out of here. We, ne- we don't want you here. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, the very next chapter, Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if, I did the mighty, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it'll be more bearable on judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, the place where he is, you'll be, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Every place Jesus has been, he's been rejected. He hasn't been received. The whole nation of Israel is about to turn him over to be killed and then the Romans carry out the crucifixion at the hands of the Jews. You want to follow me? Fellow man will reject you. Your comforts may be taken from you. In Matthew 10, 16, and if you have your Bibles, it might uh, be worth a turn in here. Jesus says, to his disciples, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Does this sound like fun? (laughs) Sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent of doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and will flog you in the synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you uh, in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You want to follow me? Sheep among wolves. Rejection. They'll arrest you. They'll bring you to the courts. Your father might turn you over to death. Your brother might turn you over to death. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then he goes on, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, 
you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll deny him before my Father in heaven. What's Jesus teaching here? He's teaching, I'm sending you out. They're going to hate you. They're going to treat you poorly, but don't fear them. All they can do is kill your body. Don't fear them. All they can do is kill your body. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him that can throw your body and soul into hell. But what does he say? They're not going to get away with this. Anything that is done wrong is going to be brought to light. All wrongs will be made right one day. God cares for you. He hasn't forgotten you. God's so compassionate. Even when a sparrow falls off a branch, God knows it. God cares. How much more does he care for you? You see, Jesus' call to follow him is not some fluffy emotional experience. It's accounting of cost. Is there a fitness for the kingdom of God? Do you, you value the acceptance of man and comfort more than Christ? This will be tested in your life. There will be many times where you know what it means to not be ashamed of Christ in the front of man. Sometimes you will fail. But as Christians, you will endure in success and being counted and marred with him. It's not perfection. But Christians will go to the point of even death, losing their life for their commitment in following Christ. The Apostle Paul could have just said, all right, I'll quit preaching don't chop off my head. But he didn't value his life more than his relationship with Christ. His eyes were set somewhere. Jesus is set towards Jerusalem to die on the cross where he'll be raised up to glory. He has glory in his mind as he comes to endure the cross. Second question, 
Do I value money or good duty more than Christ? So now Jesus turns to another and says, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first. Let me first. Go and bury my father. There's conditions. Can I change the rules? Let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. When Jesus calls you to follow him, you don't go get your life in order. In order to do that. There's a desperate need for you to follow Christ now. Remember Lot's wife? When God said, get out of there, the angel said, get out of town now. Don't look back. Don't stop in the valley. To stop and look back is to treasure this old life of sin. And as Lot's wife looks back, she's turned to a pillar of salt. There's an urgency and Christ's call to value him above all else now. Well, let me first know. And it might seem harsh. Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I read a bunch of commentaries, and they're split over what this statement means. And to be honest with you, it doesn't matter either way. The point is the same. John MacArthur says it means this. When he says, let me first go bury my father, what he's saying is, is let me wait till my father dies so I can get the inheritance because I don't want to give up all this money that I'm going to inherit from my father. Give that all away in the moment and follow you. Let me go get my finances in line. And then once I'm all set there, then I'll come follow you. That could be. And I was convinced of that. And then I read another commentary. And Robert Stein says this, Jesus' demands on allegiance, transcending even this greatest uh, filial, even, even the greatest of filial obligations. Jesus demands an allegiance transcending our, I'm sorry, I read that twice. Some interpreters have sought to relieve the hardness of this saying by assuming that the father was not dead yet. And this son was saying, wait till my father dies, then I'll follow you. He says, there however is no hint of this in the text. So some say the father's dead and a funeral needs to happen. Either way, the point is the same. Whatever duty you have that you ought to do, none of them usurp following Christ, treasuring Christ. None of them do. Your money doesn't usurp it. Your greatest, for a Jew not to bury their father would be the most horrible thing. There's only two uh, people in the Jewish culture that weren't allowed to bury their fathers, and that was the high priest because they couldn't touch the dead, 
are those who took a Nazarite vow. But everyone else, if you read the Old Testament, the sons buried the fathers. That's what you're to do. And Jesus is saying, I'm even above that duty. The highest call is to follow me. And it seems like Jesus is being unloving or unconsiderate. And yet, you can't even love your family the way you're supposed to love your family if you don't value Christ the most. Here's why. If you tried to, you're created to be, get your identity and your value from your relationship with God. If you don't value him highest, and let's say you, you value your wife highest in your life. Well, now you're going to expect your wife to fulfill what only Christ can fulfill. And you'll crush her with your expectations for her to fill your happiness and security. And she was never made to do it. If you don't love Christ above all else, you can't love people the way you ought to love people. So whether it's money in mind or duty, even good duty that you ought to do, either way, it's calling us to uh, love Christ above all else. The rich young ruler, trying to think if we got time to, I'll just summarize the story. The rich young ruler had a hard time following Christ because he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. All those things gave him a sense of false security. Jesus says, go sell all you have and follow me and you'll have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But he went away sad because he didn't value being with Jesus in the kingdom of God and having the promise of glory. He valued immediate power, immediate youngness and strength and wealth. He wasn't fit for the kingdom because his treasure was in the wrong place. And then Peter says to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying, don't pout, Peter. Well, I left everything to follow you. In this life, you're going to gain more brothers, more sisters, more lands, more homes. Yes, you're going to suffer persecution, but eternal life's at the end of it. If you value that which is at the end, he's good to you in the present. Even in the persecutions, look at the richness of this family. Look how many of us there are that love each other. And we have glory waiting for us.
When he says, leave the dead to bury the dead, what he's saying is this, leave the spiritually dead people. They're adequate in burying physically dead people. They are. Spiritually dead people can put them in the ground just fine. But for you, go preach the kingdom of God, he says. The most important thing in the world is not putting your father in the ground. That's not eternal. It's preaching the kingdom of God. That's eternal. And so a value system, when you see Christ, changes. And I can tell you this. If you follow Christ, your faith in him will inevitably cost you money. It'll cost you, even financially, in ways the world would cringe at. Though you rejoice in the cost because your value system is different. The world won't believe what you do, even with your money, when you have your eyes set on Christ. They can't understand it. And it will cost you. Because if you're in business, you'll have business deals where you're not going to meet evil with evil in order to get the extra dime. So that's going to cost you. If you're going to love there, you're not going to cheat on your taxes where everyone else cheats on their taxes. That's going to cost you. You might not go get this or that because you send your money over to Africa. That's going to cost you. But you can do it rejoicing because your value system is different. Listen to the disciples in Acts 5 after they're put in prison for preaching the gospel and then God lets them out. And that night he opens the gates. They go out preaching again. They're like, what in the world? We just put them in jail. Now they're out preaching again. <laughs> but then they gather them together. When they had called the apostles, they said, one of, one of them said, don't kill them. It's just going to cause a riot. So here's what they did. It says, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus and let them go. So they just got beat for preaching Christ. Here's their response. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. These are weird people who value preaching the kingdom of God. They suffer. I can't believe God counts me worthy to suffer in a similar way as my master, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a value system they had. All right, my longest point, and I got about four minutes, so how are we going to do this? All right, point three. If you value family more than Christ, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 61. Yet, Another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here's the point. If your heart is set more on your family 
than on Christ. You may start off with Christ, but you'll leave him. You will go back. If Christ is calling you to walk this way, and whatever you value is behind you is greater than this, you're going to turn around. We always follow what we love more. And to plow, no one can plow a straight line looking backwards. You're going to be curving to the right or to the left. You can't follow God that way. If you put your hand to the plow, if you're going to follow Christ, what you're going to do is you're going to see your reward. You're going to see the glory. And you're going to know that Christ said, you're going to suffer like I did. If they hated me, they'll hate you. But because you value this so much, you will go through the suffering. Yes, it'll be hard. Yes, there'll be ups and downs and successes and failures, but you'll stay the course because you value what God has done for you in Christ. I just want to finish um, at a whole bunch of verses here, but we're just going to go to Hebrews 11 to close. Hebrews 11 is what they call the hall of fame of faith, right? This, this is where uh, the writer of Hebrews recounts the faith of those who have gone before him to encourage those Christians presently to endure to the end, to fight the good fight. And I just want to point out a few verses. In Hebrews 11, 6, we read, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Christian faith believes that God exists, but not just that he exists, but he rewards those who seek him. Meaning to follow Christ is better than not to follow Christ. There's a reward in going God's way. You tracking with me? True faith believes in God's self-revelation in the Bible, but that it's better to go with him. Then you get all these examples, and I'm just going to show you a couple. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> all, right, all right, let's see. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place, go out to a place that, that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith, he went and lived in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So rich Abraham, who was incredibly comfortable, went to a place that was not his home, but God promised it to him. When he got there, he lived in tents as a foreigner because he had his eyes set on a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Cities in this world are crushed by armies and they're burned down to rubble and they're built up and they're crushed. But Abraham 
live that life of suffering on the way to the promised land, trusting the promise because he saw a city that could never be moved. His eyes were set on something so sure. No one who looks back thinking, my home's back there is fit for the kingdom of God. Abraham endured in faith because of the promise he was believing. And then in verse 13, uh, after we get a list of those who've trusted in God, it said, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. So people who suffer on this earth for the name of Christ, and people say they're crazy people. What are they doing? It makes it clear that they're seeking a homeland that isn't here. Verse 15 is the key. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Do you see that? Because they made a value judgment, my keeping my old life the way it is, comfortable, safe, not causing people to push me away because of Christ is not as valuable to what Christ offers and what he's done for you. And then, uh, verse 24, by faith, Abraham, our Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin offers pleasure, but it's fleeting pleasures. He valued being mistreated with the people of God rather than being Pharaoh's daughter's son. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. It's all about value. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Here's the whole point of the sermon. Where you have your eyes set is where your treasure is. And I plead with you to look at how much more valuable what is purchased for you in Christ to what it looks like to hang on to the fleeting pleasures of this world. Fleeting pleasures of sin. The way we endure as Christians to the end, through whatever happens, right now no one's threatening to kill us, they may be in 10 years. Who knows? It'd probably be good for the Christian church if there was pressure. But either way, you will go where your desires are. The reason why you wake up in the morning to read your Bible, the reason why you need to do that and to be in God's word is because you need to fall in love with the God of the Bible. You need to look at those promises and you need to cling to them because that's going to be, you're either going to set your eyes there or on whatever else that's 
world has to offer. So I care that you profess Christ. But that's not my main question. Is Christ the greatest value in your life? Because he is your only hope. He's your creator. He died for you. He's coming again. He's going to give eternal life to those who treasure him above all else and cling to him, even through suffering, even to the loss of life. Father, I pray that all of us would count the cost, that we would see in your word how great Christ is. The Apostle Paul says he counts all things lost in comparison to knowing him, to the surpassing knowledge of Christ. Father, give us a hunger for him. Let us remember that we're worshipers. Let us consider what we're worshiping. Let us gladly die to our old life, Father, that we might live by faith in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.